You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 10th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Russia appears to relinquish the greatest prize of its war in Ukraine. Italy's new prime minister issues reassurances about whose side she's on. And the always gratifying spectacle of a too clever by half ad campaign detonating in the face of its creator. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Alex von Tunzelman and Antonello Guerrero will discuss all the day's big stories and our On This Day historical feature will recall the maritime disaster which achieved immortality as an unlikely hit record. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Alex von Tunzelman, the historian, author and screenwriter, and by Antonello Guerrera, UK correspondent and Westminster lobby journalist for La Repubblica. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Uh, And hello to you in particular, uh, Antonello. This is your first time on the Daily. What listeners can't see is that, as is customary, we have made you dress up in the owl costume. Uh, But if you you could unscrew the head long enough to just briefly introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, First of all, thank you very much for the invitation very honored to be here uh, i'm um, i work for the main italian new- newspaper i'm 38 years old uh, i work in the in the parliament but i cover also um, other stuff like uh, arts and sports here in the, in the london i've been here i've been living here for more than four years now so very happy to be here to discuss on so y- you've had to explain the last four years of British politics to Italians. Sadly, yes. Oh my God! <laughs> I mean, you, you must at least be relieved that, like, you, now you work here and nobody can make jokes to you about the pol- politics in Italy being unstable and chaotic. Absolutely, indeed. I mean, um, a few days ago there was the economist cover, "Welcome to uh, Brittany," <laughs> and that caused the reaction. I mean, the um, reaction of the Italian ambassador was fuming <laughs> because. Of <laughs> Stereotypes. So you know, it's yeah, it's a recognition that uh, Italy is not the most unstable country. At the same time, you know, uh, that 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 cover I mean didn't didn't go you know well in uh, uh, Italy. But you must be very happy, Alex, representing Britain at this table as you do. That Britain has been able to help here and has <laughs> has taken this reputation away from Italy. Yeah, I mean, it has to, I thought that cover was incredibly dated, actually, because really it seemed much what, more. Because a Liz Truss was on it. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, I mean it was out of date almost immediately, but but also because that was sort of a reference very much of the eighties and nineties. Mm. You know, that British politicians would make jokes about Italy, and now it's like I really think this is a mess of our own making actually and has been for some time so perhaps you know perhaps we should own that (laughs) well we will come back to italian politics but we will start the show with ukraine where russia's withdrawal from kherson appears to be underway this is a potentially significant moment strategically and psychologically kherson is the only regional capital russia has captured since february its percent its potential concession back to ukraine not only exposes russia's military to the terrible hazards of retreat under fire but could make it easier for ukraine 
to strike Russian targets inside occupied Crimea. By way of reminder of the costs of this war, the United States Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, has estimated that both Russia and Ukraine have suffered casualties running into six figures. Um, Alex, first of all, the, the retreat from Kherson, however Russia may try to spin this, is there any way of looking at this other than that this is just a, well, this is a humiliation, isn't it? Yeah, pretty straightforwardly, to be honest. I mean, you know, you could try to, I mean, obviously they're going to try and reconsolidate around Crimea or whatever. But I mean, we can all see that this is a withdrawal from objectives, which, you know, lest we forget at the beginning of the campaign with a complete conquest of Ukraine and have... In, in a weekend. Yes, in a weekend and have sort of shifted more and more during the campaign, I suppose, in the collision with reality, um, as is happening. I mean, I was kind of interested to hear these. The casualty figures are so hard to assess. And I was sort of trying to work out where Mark Milley had got these huge, huge numbers from. Because I mean, if it is losses of 100,000 on each side, that's really, you know, extraordinary compared to something like, say, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Or It is it is roughly twice the total Red Army casualties in 10 years in Afghanistan. I mean, that's immense. Mm. But I think on the other hand, I mean, I suppose what one must think is at the moment that these numbers are impressionistic, mm. surely. I mean, you know, it will be instructive to see what happens in Kherson in the next few weeks really and what is left behind and what sort of stories people there who've been there through the occupation are going to tell. Um, Antonello, it's, it's, it's very hard to tell uh, at a distance, of course, and it's been very hard to tell for 10 months now what Russia thinks it's doing. But do you perceive any rethinking of their strategy here or any attempt to reposition what they're trying to accomplish? As Alex was just reminding us, we know what they wanted to do, uh, but they don't seem to have had much in the way of Plan B ever since, do they? Well, it's it's very complicated to say, of course, because you know we know that the Russia is a very cryptic uh, country. But at the same time, I was quite struck and stunned by the video uh, um, yesterday um, that was, you know, uh, published by uh, uh, the officials of uh, Russia in which Shoigu, the defense mm. minister, and the top, you know, general, uh, uh, they, they, they just admit, uh, uh, like, you know, a defeat in the, in the Kherson and they say, okay, we have to leave, I mean, at, at least, I mean, half, I mean, beyond the, uh, the, the Dnipro River. This means... Uh, this might mean also because we we know that uh, Putin and uh, the regime they cannot admit I mean a, a defeat I mean in terms of in, um, in 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 front of their people but at the same time this can be a message mm. for the West saying okay. Um, this is a kind of con- concession that we are that we are making. We cannot say that explicitly, but this can be the. I mean the the ground to start. I mean on a, a negotiation. I mean in the, the next few months. The thing is, I don't think there is a, a human unanimity or uh, a total um, agreement among the Western countries because I keep saying. I devarication, I would say, between the US and the UK, maybe as well. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on there, and those those videos that uh, Antonello refers to there, Alex, which were extraordinary. I did rather get the feeling that if the camera was to pan abruptly left, you you would you would see a hatchet-faced gentleman in an overcoat holding a pistol. Um, <laughs> but is it possible that there's something, there's signalling going on here, both from Russia and both from perhaps the United States in invoking these casualty figures? There is some suggestion that the US is trying to nudge them towards recognising that this is not sustainable on either side and maybe they should 
be at least thinking about talking to each other. Yes, and that somehow if it can be admitted that the cost is too high, that that is some way of perhaps selling it to the Russian public and so on, is that it then becomes a kind of humanitarian step down rather than you know, crushing defeat, etc. Um, I think the official Russian casualty figures are still being quoted at under 6,000 troops. So that's mm. a pretty big difference from the numbers talking about today. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, well, who can tell? There's a whole industry in trying to work out what is going on in the Kremlin and what they're signalling and what they're thinking. Um, I think, you know, we're just going to have to see how this plays out. But I do think, I mean, one thing that does have to be said so far, I really think that... I'm actually very impressed with how the US has played this so far. I think they've been very mm. clever about their signalling and their communication around it and very thoughtful about it all the way through. And they're, clearly their information has been quite good for a lot of this. Mm. Um, and I mean, that's quite a big turnaround from perhaps what we might have experienced under the last presidency. Um, well, indeed so. Um, that does bring us uh, to the subject of Italian politics, and there were, and perhaps indeed are, any number of good reasons for the rest of Europe to be somewhat nervous about the ascent to Italy's prime ministership of Giorgia Maloney, leader of the far-right Brothers of Italy. On at least one count, however, which is Europe's support for Ukraine, Maloney appears determined to offer no cause for concern. Hosting NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg in Rome, she assured him of Italy's commitment to NATO and Italy's support for Ukraine. Um, Antonello, is this surprising? Because obviously within her coalition, there's some fairly prominent Vladimir Putin fanboys, notably Silvio Berlusconi and Matteo Salvini. Absolutely. Uh, indeed, I mean, this Salvini and uh, Berlusconi are Putin's best friend in in Europe. I think mm. the 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 the, um, the the loudest cheerleaders, I would say, um, and also is. It might be, I mean, there is an investigation that uh, Salvini might have got money from mm. the party of you know, Putin. Um, at the same time, uh, the new prime minister, uh, Giorgio Meloni, has always uh, staunchly supported Ukraine and NATO. So there is this divarication, which is quite significant. And I can't really see how... I mean, um, what can can be the compromise? Because uh, Salvini himself also... Um, Every week, he, he attacks, you know, the sanctions against Russia. Mm. He says that they are counterproductive, and so uh, this is, I think, the most important uh, uh, thing to to to, to see uh, and monitor about the Italian government, because, uh, as we know, I mean, Italy has a very complicated uh, uh, um, history, because in, across the last de decades, has been contended by the US and the USSR. So, um, what I I, I can say, I mean, from because we live all here, but in Italy, for instance, um, the anti-Americanism mm. is, I mean, is quite, you know, uh, broad. Well, th this is something I wanted to ask about: whether there is in Italy a any amount of sympathy for that that pro-Putin view of Berlusconi and Salvini, um, or whether it actually is sort of that anti-Americanism finding an outlet in, you know, being all fond of Putin. Yeah, you know, it's very uh, interesting because it's uh, this is the anti-Americanism is something that uh, merges uh, and uh, attracts the radical uh, right and the radical left mm. uh, in Italy. And the thing is because I mean in last century um, in the last de decades after the after the war the the, the strongest 
leftist party was the Communist Party in Italy. The Communist Party, which is something very peculiar that we haven't seen in other um, European countries after the Second World War. Um, so um, you you can see also, you know, that there is this thing, you know, under the, the skin when you have talk shows on TV and every time. Uh, People I mean, pro-Russia or very, you know, or uh, Russophiles, uh, they, they always invited, always, which is something that we can never see here. Well, indeed not. Um, Alex, what's your read on why Maloney has been so keen to issue these reassurances and make it clear that, no, we're still pro-NATO, we are pro-supporting Ukraine. Do you get the sense that that is conviction on her part, or is she also realising or being smart enough to realise at some point we are going to need the EU, and I don't want Italy to be thought of as a problem child like Poland or Hungary? Well, I did wonder, actually, whether there was an element of that pragmatism. Mm. I mean, you know, and actually, well, in fact, I'd love to hear what Antonello thinks about it. But I mean, you know, I think if you just look at a map and a bit of history creeps into your mind, you know, you know that Hungary, for instance, of course, used to be under Soviet control, Mm -hmm. um, is much physically closer to the ex-Soviet Union, you know, now to Putin's Russia. Um, Italy is not (laughs) physically close to that. So there's a certain level of sort of, yeah, I mean, of course, you've got Berlusconi doing all this kind of nonsense and stuff, but there's a certain reality, isn't there, to the geography of the situation. Do you think that's a factor, Antonella? Yeah, absolutely. Also because uh, uh, Italy is in the heart of the Mediterranean Sea, so it's always been a target for everyone and um, Russia in in the, in the in included as i said the connections um, between Russia and Italy are stronger uh, more uh, capillary than than other countries and that's why i mean in moscow Mm. Putin and and his people they know really well that Italy may be the soft flank or the the, 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 mm. the, the weakest part of the Western Front that you know may you know crumble in, in terms of the opposition against Russia and support for you for Ukraine. Um, I think that uh, as you also said, uh, Giorgia Meloni she needs to have at least internationally. Uh, uh, um, to be solid, and, mm. and because she needs, you know, money uh, from EU, um, and, and and also she has always supported, you know, the Western values in some way, and not the civil rights uh, <laughs> uh, often, but the, the Western values because she's always scared by China. This is another mm. thing that she cannot really stand, um, and that's why I think that after the war in in Ukraine, uh, she shifted i mean even more to the to to the west the problem is that uh, is i mean her two main uh, coalition partners are pro russia uh, just uh, finally on this antonello as and it goes back to what you were talking about about the the anti-westernism that does still bubble up in Italy. Has Italy's membership of NATO itself ever been at all controversial? I, I was trying to find some figures on this. I found a Pew poll from 2020 which said that 60% of Italians had a favourable view of NATO, but only 25% of Italians believe that Italy should help defend a NATO partner if Russia attacked it, which su- leads me to suspect that 35% of Italians don't really understand how NATO works. Yeah, this is a very important issue. Um, the problem is NATO, of course, is associated with uh, the uh, US. Uh, and this, of course, I mean, uh, uh, irritates uh, the part of uh, you know, the uh, radical left or, you know, the, the leftist parties. Um, and so, and so 
at the same time, at, at, at the same time, the U.S. was absolutely crucial for uh, the uh, development mm. of Italy after the war because of the, of the Marshall Plan. Uh, so it's it's a bit like. The same, I think, when you ask an Italian, oh, do you like uh, um, the EU or the euro <laughs> currency? And they say 60% will say no. But then if you want, do you want to exit it? They say no, either. <laughs> so um, it's, I think it's, it's more an in, in instinctive reaction that um, also you know, stems from history in some way. But I think that uh, Italy... It's strongly, I mean, part of NATO. Uh, it's strongly part of the, of the G7. It's a founder of the EU in, this, in this some way. I mean, the modern one. So I, I think that what really can change in Italy with under Giorgia Meloni mm. is more about internal issues like civil rights, abortion, migrants. We are seeing, I mean, now there's an incredible excruciating rift between mm. Italy and France in just you know in these hours now is going on because it was an incredible uh, uh, um, uh, because uh, basically uh, Giorgio Meloni and the and French president Emmanuel Macron they met in uh, uh, Sheikh at COP and Macron vaguely said okay we can help you um, with the uh, migrants uh, issue mm. and the, the day after um, uh, the, the 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 prime minister office released uh, like these uh, uh, documents saying oh, okay France has accepted to take all these you know uh, uh, migrants on the Viking ship that they are now uh, are, are around Italy and France. Uh, but they, but the the early say they never they, ne they never say that they never officially say that. So now there is a big um, diplomatic rift uh, between the two countries, and this is the first first big problem for Giorgio Meloni, internationally speaking. Well, let's look now at the United States, where counting is continuing following Tuesday's midterm elections. In some respects, these seem to have gone much as was expected. The Republican Party will probably win back the House of Representatives, and the Democratic Party might just about hang on to the Senate. In other respects, though, these midterms were surprising. They were not the red wave many Trumpist Republicans had foreshadowed, and arguably the biggest winner was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Trump's likeliest rival for the GOP nomination for the presidency in 2024. But here is US President Joe Biden speaking earlier. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. And I know you were somewhat miffed by my, uh, my uh, obsessive optimism, but uh, I felt good during the whole process. I thought we were going to do fine. While any seat lost is painful, some good Democrats didn't win the last night. Democrats had a strong night. And we lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. And we had the best midterm for governors since 1986. President Joe Biden reflecting on a defeat which must have felt weirdly like a victory. Um, Alex, does this recalibrate things? Donald Trump was supposed or assumed to be declaring next week that he would indeed seek the Republican nomination for the presidency. Does that now seem less likely? Well, it certainly does throw it into doubt. I think what it definitely was was a pretty bad night for Trumpism because actually a lot of his 
favoured candidates were the people not winning. And DeSantis, meanwhile, seemed to be having a very, very good night, as your correspondent said. Um, And really, you know, I think this does change things a little bit. It does shake things up. Um, And... You know, at the same time, I don't think the Democrats can rest on their laurels. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the wipeout, but it wasn't a brilliant night for them either. I think they do have to have a think about the sort of party gerontocracy and perhaps how they need to reach out more to younger voters. I mean, young voters did vote in pretty impressive numbers, but it's still low. You know, there's a lot that they could be Mm. doing. Um, But I mean, in terms of on the right, yeah, I mean, I do think it, I think DeSantis has been coming up for a long time now and it's going to be quite interesting seeing what I suspect probably will be a contest between him and Trump. It would still be pretty extraordinary for Trump not to declare, but then with Trump, anything could happen. Who knows? (laughs) And you could certainly find yourself, I mean, DeSantis is a much more skilled political operator, but he's also a much less good speaker and much less charismatic, I think, in person. Mm. Um, And I think you could, you know, who knows? With Trump, you could definitely see a kind of, you know, those two facing off against each other and DeSantis pulling ahead until in the last week, Trump calls him Little Ronnie or something and the whole thing falls apart. (laughs) Anything could happen. Um, I I do want to come back, Alex, to the the potential of a a Trump versus DeSantis uh, contest. But just before we do that, just to pick up on something else you were talking about, about the, the Democrats' gerontocracy and their need to do more to reach out to the youth vote, which is where their vote clearly is, judging by the exit polls, hugely uh, yeah. the younger the voters get, the more democratic they become. How big a problem is, as things stand, their presumptive nominee for president. Joe Biden will be 80 years old uh, 10 days from now. His approval rating is about 41%, which is worse than any recent president after 660 days, except, and this might be the exception that Biden wants to point to, Ronald Reagan. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think Biden had a strange surge in popularity among the youth this year. I think partly the sort of, you know, student writing off some student loans and all that was very popular there are things he's done and you know he gets memed a lot I mean you know (laughs) (laughs) well that's been going back to the time when he was vice president he kind of got goofed on a lot as Obama's zany uncle he does and now he's kind of because the right wing kind of have this let's go Brandon thing around him now the the left have now picked that up as dark Brandon and they show him with lasers coming out of his eyes (laughs) and all this so he's that's a certain I mean surprising sort of less I mean more of a following than you might think but yeah I mean I do think I think it's an issue and I think but it's not just him it does go beyond him it is the whole kind of management of the democratic party is very much in the hands of an older generation and they've been very hostile towards some younger members like you know who are often progressive and more leftist people like you know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. you know who who actually do have really quite a strong youth following and I think there were always ways to bring those people in or to push them out and I my own view is that they probably should have done more to bring them in and less to kind of distance themselves from them. I think there's a kind of real nervousness mm. in that older level of the Democrat Party and they haven't really moved on. So I do think that does, you know, you've got Schumer and Pelosi and Biden, they're all, <laughs> you know, pretty superannuated at this point. I mean, you know, and, and not at all stupid people and people I have some respect for, but there is a representation problem. Uh, Antonello, uh, Donald Trump and Trumpism have been written off many, many, many times, quite a few of them by me, in fact, and and and, they, and has always somehow somewhat enragingly found a way to come back. But if we are looking at a, a, 
a handoff, unwilling and graceless though it doubtless will be, of the of the torch from Trump to DeSantis. Does that seem like the, the natural evolution of Trumpism, i.e. that you, you keep an amount of that kind of strange, paranoid nativist fervour about Trump, but you basically have it operated by somebody who is slightly more competent and less volatile? Yes, I think... Uh Trump really fears um, the Santis. In, indeed, I mean, he started to offend him. Like the, <laughs> he called him uh, the sanctimonious. <laughs> and That's a hell of a fifty-cent word. word for Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, <right>? Exactly, <laughs> it's big effort yeah. for sure. Um, so. Mm, DeSantis has, uh, apart from his Italian origin, but I mean, apart from that, <laughs> jokes aside, uh, I think he's literally what Trump uh, most fears because he's yo- much younger, he's a more orth- uh, orthodox Republican, mm. he's a good-looking uh, guy, is uh, yeah, he cannot he cannot speak uh, like, like him, but he, he can be charismatic, like uh, mm. um, this election. Um, in the district of uh, Miami Dale, where, where, where uh, Hillary Clinton won uh, um, in 2016 against uh, mm. Donald Trump by 30 or 40 points, if I remember well, he won there. So he, he has also an appeal to some, um, I mean, some electorate of the Democrats, uh, um, and I think that it's is big chance now because uh, uh, basically we don't know who is going to be the Democratic uh, candidate. Because Donald Trump, uh, because uh, Joe, Joe Biden, sorry, he um, more increasingly he is doing gaffes like uh, 54 uh, American states. Uh, and and, and I, I can see a, su- a successor, um, to be honest. I think um, AOC uh, or Casa Cortes, she's maybe too radical. Um, uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg, yes, maybe, but he's very young, a bit of an experience. So, I think that this can be the real chance for Ron DeSantis, and he knows that, and he doesn't confront me directly against you know Trump, but we have to see what Donald Trump is going to say on Tuesday next next Tuesday because this is going to be crucial. Well, let's move along. And by FIFA's reckoning, the 2018 World Cup was watched by a combined total of three and a half billion people. Understandably enough, that is an audience that advertisers want their name in front of by direct sponsorship or other means. The holding of 2022's World Cup in Qatar furnishes advertisers with a challenge how to associate themselves with the football while dissociating themselves from the host. Scottish beer-mongers Brewdog thought they'd cracked it by positioning themselves as anti-sponsors, declared via a campaign of somewhat sanctimonious, that word again, posters. These, however, prompted the large chorus in retort that Brewdog's own business practices have been frequently criticised and that Brewdog's beer is available for purchase in Qatar. Um, Alex, first of all, Brewdog, for all sorts of reasons, are not not always the easiest uh, company to feel colossal amounts of sympathy for. But in this instance, even allowing for the fact that though the wording of it is somewhat woolly, they say that profits from one of their lagers are going to, I quote, fight human rights abuse, doesn't say quite how that's going to happen. But if we take their word for it. Well, should we, based on some of their previous (coughs) promotions, you might want to look at the small print quite carefully on that one. Um, I mean... (sighs) 
you know, this just seems like more of a way of getting their name in the news, really. Than, and it's you know, worked. And it has worked. Here we are talking about them. I mean, this uh, this can happen. I, I'm afraid I'm a bit cynical about it just because they don't have the greatest reputation as a company. They have pulled fast ones in this situation before. Um, so, you know, and I think actually getting involved with it, if you, you know, really, I think the thing to do in terms of Qatar is to, you know, personally, I, I wouldn't want to get involved at all. Um, I think if you're going to platform anyone, then let's uh, speak to some Qatari LGBTQ people, let them have the microphone rather than some Scottish beer company. Um, <laughs> you know, so so perhaps, uh, I, I don't know, it just feels a little bit insincere, like a way of uh, making money while also perhaps trying to whitewash your reputation at the same time. See, on that thought, Antonello, it did strike me that Brewdog have made actually and ironically exactly the same mistake Qatar has in putting this World Cup on, because <laughs> getting everybody to pay attention to you is a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, everybody pays attention to you, but on the other hand, yeah, everybody pays attention to you. And if there is something that people can beat you up about, they're going to. Yes, uh, I think so. I also think that, um, yeah, it's a very complicated matter. I think that this World Cup, as uh, the former FIFA president, Seth Platter, said um, the other day, it should have go, gone on beforehand. I mean, mm. w when he was assigned to, to, to Qatar, it was, was the bad decision. At the same time now... Uh, because there has been so much talk about uh, Gary Neville, for instance, going mm -hmm. to uh, commentate, and uh, um, or also like uh, uh, if it if it is you know the the right thing to to play, or I interviewed Gareth uh, uh, Southgate, the mm -hmm. uh, England manager, the other day, and he said basically, uh, well, I mean, I talk with um, the workers. And they, they, they want us to go on because it's something, it's a kind of legacy mm -hmm. of, of their work. Uh, I generally think that in some way um, having a dialogue or like um, inter interconnections between countries and uh, cultures is always better than being isolated. I'm, I am just, you know, uh, uh, generally speaking. Mm. So... Despite all these these caveats that we have just you know said uh, and the, the bad re re reputation of uh, Qatar, I really hope that this World Cup will be a a, a, a mean or a, a vehicle of of change. I mean, also for 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 uh, for uh, Qatar, the Arab countries, uh, but we we will have to see. Well, just finally on this one, um, Alex, before we let you go, it would be remiss not to ask you as a historian for your, your view uh, on Kentucky Fried Chicken in Germany's uh, promotion of this week. You have to think I, this, you have mean, to think this is down to some sort of automatic calendar software which flagged that there was a significant date. They have, in fairness, apologised, yes. and one would hope so. But yeah, they were actually saying, and I quote, commemoration of Kristallnacht. Uh, treat yourself to more soft cheese and crispy chicken now at KF Cheese. Oh my God. Yes, it's sort of completely <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, and it's, I think what they say has happened, and actually, I think it must have done, because I simply can't see how else this would have got through, is that the, um, they're, Twitter feed was attached, there was a bot basically mm. primed to go, 
any national holiday tweet mm-hmm. a promotion. So, you know, and nobody sort of thought, hold on a minute, some national holidays are quite serious commemorations of things, possibly <laughs> not the time to talk about your crispy cheese. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was unbelievably, probably the most inappropriate advertising thing I've ever seen, <laughs> I think, probably it's fair to say. Um, yes, they did delete it. I mean, there's a huge amount of upset about it, obviously. Uh, I saw lots and lots of coverage in Israeli newspapers and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it really must have been uh, cock up rather than uh, rather than conspiracy. You would very much have to hope it's a mistake they will not make twice. Uh, Alex von Tunzelman and Antonello Guerrera, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's daily, our on this day historical series recalls a maritime disaster that briefly threatened to cause a full scale revival of the sea shanty. What will we do with a drunken sailor? What will we do with a drunken sailor? Listeners may recall an online craze a couple of years back when COVID-19 lockdowns were perhaps getting to people somewhat for the sea shanty. The sea shanty deserved as a genre better. And as we wind up into this week's history lesson, let's kick it old school with Ewan McColl and A.L. Lloyd. All on the pole in the pole in the hole. For prior to its otherwise regrettable recent revival by confined hipsters, the sea shanty had rather faded from the lexicon of popular song. A modern, well, modernish sea shanty has not been a proper hit for nearly half a century, and the event which inspired the deeply weird song in question took place on this day 47 years ago. A freighter carrying a crew of 29 disappeared on Lake Superior during a severe storm last night, and so far, no survivors have been found. The freighter, the Edmund Fitzgerald, was transporting iron ore when it ran into high winds and 25-foot waves. Shortly after the SS Edmund Fitzgerald went down with all hands on November 10th, 1975, Newsweek magazine published a story about the loss of the mighty freighter on Lake Superior. The article caught the eye of Canadian folk singer Gordon Lightfoot, probably best known to that point for this somewhat mawkish ballad. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Lightfoot began arranging the facts of the Edmund Fitzgerald's demise to a gloomy Irish folk sounding melody. With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. Lightfoot agonised over getting the details right, like any good reporter of events should, though some minor liberties were taken for the sake of rhyme or rhythm. The Edmund Fitzgerald was not bound for Cleveland when it sank, as Lightfoot's songs had it, but for the obscure industrial port of Zug Island, near Detroit. Though as Cleveland was the ship's home port, Lightfoot can be excused that one, and at any rate, sea shanties are hardly delivered under oath. Concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms when they left fully loaded for Cleveland. Then later that night when the ship's bell rang, could it be the north wind they'd been feeling? 
Lightfoot also kept his song faithful to the traditions of the sea shanty. It was long, six minutes or thereabouts. It told a story and did so in willfully arcane nautical language. A good ship and crew, that crew and good captain well seasoned, and so forth. It ruminated on the hardships of the sea and the stoicism of those who face them. The only significant concession to modernity was replacing what would have been the yo-ho-ho sing-along part with a wailing guitar solo. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald appeared on Lightfoot's 1976 album, Summertime Dream. It was an astonishingly unlikely choice of single. Twice the length of most radio songs, no chorus to speak of, and a significant body count. But it was a hit. Number one in Canada, number two in the United States, and remains something of a rock radio perennial. When afternoon came, it was freezing rain In the face of a hurricane west wind It even completed a circle back to the spiritual ancestry of the melody when Christy Moore applied Lightfoot's tune to a sea shanty composed by IRA prisoner Bobby Sands, later better known as a hunger striker and as the subject of more than a few mournful ballads himself. In 1803 we sailed out to sea Out from the sweet town of Derry Lightfoot's success with the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald did not prompt a widespread revival of the sea shanty, a shame as the genre furnishes writers with great stories and the freedom to tell them. In a musty old hall in Detroit they prayed in the Maritime Sailors Cathedral. The church bell chimed till it rang 29 times for each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Instead, and after quite a long wait, we got this. Soon may the weatherman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. This more recent sea shanty mania tended to manifest as unbearable young men with beards and insufferable young women in gingham dresses, few if any of whom had done much seafaring beyond pratting whimsically about some inner city pond in a pedalo, plucking ukuleles, sawing violins and trilling tweely via a zoom connection about the perils of life on the ocean wave. Tis a damn tough life full of toil and strife. We Weapons officer. Torpedoes away. Aye, aye, Captain. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Alex von Tunzelman and Antonello Guerrera. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.